Hi, I'm Vanessa. I'm Elena. I'm Genesis. And I'm Cheyenne. And, and we're, we're Fulbright, Fulbright Latinx. Fulbright Latinx is an inclusive community that bridges the relationships between past, present, and potential Latinx Fulbrighters. Our mission is to highlight and celebrate our unique yet similar experiences and inspire more Latinx candidates to apply to the Fulbright program. With these efforts, we aim to paint a more accurate representation of our intersectional community to reshape global perceptions of U.S. leadership by elevating Latinx leaders that reflect the diversity of the world we actually live in. We hope that by centering our voices and increasing our visibility, Fulbright Latinx can offer a space where members of our comunidad see a reflection of themselves and are empowered to embark on a Fulbright journey of their own. Thanks for joining us. Hey y'all, Genesis here, and welcome to Estamos Juntos, or Estamos Juntos in Portuguese, Fulbright Latinx Alumni Panel Series podcast. Along with our other initiatives to support past, present, and potential Fulbrighters, we're proud to announce that Fulbright Latinx was awarded the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund grant. This grant is what funds a series of panels hosted by us, Fulbright Latinx, where you can hear from Latinx alumni of all exchange programs and connect to create community. As part of the grant, in addition to holding live Zoom versions of the panels, we're also converting the panels into podcast episodes, which is what you're listening to now. So thanks for listening. Now jumping into our first episode, if you're interested in going abroad in general and want to learn more about the experience from a Latinx lens, then this episode is the one for you. Current exchange participants, Sabrina Mayor, Sofia Servenik, Juan Gonzalez, and Ezequiel Caceres, discuss the opportunities, the challenges, and our growing community of Latinx international exchange alumni. They touch on how being Latinx abroad may differ from other people's experiences, challenges that encompass going abroad slash being abroad, their intersectional identities, how they overcame any challenges they face, ways they found community, and more. So, let's dive in. Thank you all for being here. We really appreciate it. I'm Cheyenne, and I will be moderating this panel. I'm also part of Fulbright Latinx, who is kind of the grant holder, the whole reason we're able to have this type of meeting. Um, we applied for a Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund grant. I forget all the acronyms and stuff, but uh, we applied for a grant to be able to have this speaker series because we want to create community. We also want people to be, you know, who might be on the fence about going abroad to have just a little bit more information about what it's like and what are some things they should be thinking about. So we're really, really excited to have our three speakers here today. Um, and I will let each of the speakers introduce themselves and then we'll kind of start to just get into it. So Sabrina, do you want to go first? Um, yeah, sure. Hi, I'm Sabrina. Um, I'm originally from Miami, Florida. I use she, her pronouns. And I'm currently in Argentina now in La Plata, which is about an hour from Buenos Aires, the city, studying disability policy implementation in Argentina and how it varies throughout the country and the role of disabled people's organizations in it. 
Um, I graduated from William and Mary in 2018. And after that, I worked for the Department of Justice, Criminal Division, Office of International Affairs. I'm a proud daughter of two Cuban immigrants and identify as a disabled Latina. Okay, I'll go next. Um, hello, everybody. My name is Juan Gonzalez. Um, I use he, him pronouns. Um, I'm originally from Stockton, California in the Central Valley of California. Um, I, um, both of my parents were born in Mexico in Michoacan and they migrated to the US where I was born. Um, I went to university. I got both my bachelor's and my master's at Cal State Long Beach. Uh, my master's is in counseling, so I worked a bit in the university system. I've also um, participated in Peace Corps in the country of Samoa, which I did from 2018 to 2020, where um, I taught English to kids. And then now, like Sabrina, I'm also currently in Argentina, completing a Fulbright grant um, where I'm teaching English at the university level. Um, my name is Ezequiel Cáceres. Um, I was born and raised in Washington Heights, New York to Dominican um, immigrant parents. Um, I graduated from Middlebury College in 2015 with a, mas with a bachelor's in Middle East studies. Um, and after that I did, um, well, and while I was at Middlebury, I studied abroad in Jordan with the, CL with the Gilman program. Um, and then after I graduated, did CLS for Arabic in Jordan um, as well. And then I, I think I remember Sophia from CLS. Um, I used to work for the CLS program um, as well here in Washington, D.C. I, I did my Fulbright in 2015 to, Moro to Morocco and I taught English there for a year in a city in the South called Agadir. And then I basically came to D.C., had a number of different um, internships, cocktail of internships and, and different ex experiences before I decided to go to grad school. Um, and I just finished my master's um, in 2020. And uh, yeah, I've been working in international development now. Um, uh, I actually just received a PMF, a presidential management fellowship to work with USAID. Um, so I'm going to start there a week from today. Um, so I'm unemployed at the moment, but have that lined up um, coming up next week. So I'm really excited about that. But yeah, it's a pleasure to be a part of the panel and and thank you so much for organizing. Perfect. Um, hello, my name is Sophia. I use she, her pronouns. I was born in Lima, Peru and adopted and grew up in Minnesota. And I've spent a lot of time in Minnesota since you know, kind of my youth, I went to the University of Minnesota for undergrad and grad school. So I studied history with a minor in Asian languages and literatures, hence two CLS uh, programs in China studying Mandarin. Um, I was in Dalian in 2017 and Changchun in 2019, and they were both uh, amazing experiences. So Ezekiel, it's great to see you. Um, and then I went and pursued my master's degree in education with a focus on social justice. And I worked as a social studies teacher uh, in middle school for the past couple of years. And I'm now taking a sort of uh, break from the classroom, however, doing pedagogy development research for a Fulbright here in Peru. So I'm based in Lima, but I'm doing a full survey of the ways in which the implementation of equitable sports programs um, in the country contributes to students' academic and emotional well-being. Um, so that's hence why I'm traveling. I'm doing a lot of site visits these next couple of months um, in different parts of Peru. So it's been really cool. And I'm really happy to talk about more experiences with you all. So thanks for having me.
Yes, thank you all for introducing yourselves. Wonderful introductions. Um, I think for the audience, you can see that the panelists we have here have a wide variety of experiences. They've been to many different countries, have many different backgrounds. And so we're trying to get like a good mix so that there can at least be something that every person that's attending this or seeing this on the live stream can be able to relate to. Um, I'm Cheyenne Garcia, uh, I already said with Fulbright Latinx, but my uh, study abroad experiences, I went to Japan first, then I did a Gilman in England, then I did my Fulbright in the Netherlands. So I've been to quite a few different places and had a few different grants as well, but I am very excited to, to get to talk to everyone about their experiences and what it was like on each of their grants. And so I'm going to ask some questions, but I think that in the spirit of talking about all of our full experiences, if you've been on multiple grants, feel free to take a longer time talking about each different one when I talk about experiences. Um, but the first question that I think we'll start with is a little bit just zooming back to those early days before you ever went abroad or before you even uh, were in any country, what inspired each of you to want to go abroad and or to apply to your program in general? Um, I can go. I've been thinking about this a lot. Uh, recently, I'm applying for actually more grant funding apart from the State Department here to, to help fund my research. Um, and I kind of realized pretty recently that my story has always been a kind of international story. Um, being an international adoptee, the world was always really big for me growing up because I lived in the U.S., but I was, you know, my family, my biological family, and my own background was from another country. And I think, especially Latinx people living in the U.S., like a lot of us can relate to that on some level. So growing up, the world was always really, really big to me. And I did have that first motivation of um, like going to Peru, right, and studying a little bit of, of my own background. But also, I think having a lot of family encouragement was really helpful to me, too. Both my parents have traveled uh, for work, for, you know, for fun. Um, and so I think that that does make a difference. And not to say that, you know, if your family doesn't like travel, you can't. But I think that is um, a privilege that I think I experienced growing up is that my family first had the means to travel, you know, even if it was road tripping everywhere, because we were a big family and flying is very expensive. Um, yeah, but also just having the privilege of a family who um, saw travel as a leisure and not just a means to get from one place to another for, for whatever family needs we had. So those would be two reasons why studying abroad seemed really interesting to me. And then in high school, my high school had a pretty robust language program and they had spring break trips. Uh, and that was a really cool experience that a lot of us were able to tap into was going abroad. Um, that was my first time in China was in high school. And that really just like continued to expand my worldview to a whole another part of the world that I hadn't even considered going to. So I think a lot of the younger years really helped shape my world. Oh, Sabrina, did you want to go next or someone? I think someone unmuted. I um, but but yeah, just to piggyback off of what Sophia was saying, um, I think it, it was definite. I think my upbringing definitely influenced um, my desire to like just go abroad and things like that. Um, I definitely grew up within a very 
specific enclave. Um, I'm sure everybody knows In the Heights, the musical and stuff like that, but it's definitely like I can relate on many levels to that. Um, just not really being feeling like I could get out of Washington Heights. And then when I was in high school, similarly to Sophia, I did an exchange program to Paris and that just completely like rocked my world. Like I I was, I was like, it was, it was nothing that, that I had seen before. I had grown up going to the Dominican Republic every summer with my family and feel like I had grown up between New York and the Dominican Republic. Um, and yeah, and that just really just was the catalyst that got everything rolling. And then when I decided oh, like that I was looking at universities, I had the opportunity to apply to Middlebury, which had a really good language program. And, um, and I got a scholarship to go to Middlebury with the Posse Foundation, which was um, amazing. But when I was there, I was thinking like, hey, like, I'm living in a post 9-11 like New York context and like not understanding anything about the Middle East. It's always on the news. Like people, you know, there are always all these experts on TV like talking about this place, but I feel like I just was not conversant about it at all. And obviously I grew up with my mom being obsessed with Shakira and like watching El Colón and stuff like that on, on TV, the novelas and everything like that. Um, and I was like, well, this is such a fascinating place. Um, and I ought to just like learn a little bit more about it. And so that was really what got me interested in the Middle East. So I started studying Arabic my first semester of, of, um, of undergrad, um, and then like put that together with like international affairs. And I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do with my career. Um, and I think that what introduced me to these programs was obviously, you know, everybody's like state department, state department. And they and like, they kind of shove that down your throat whenever you're trying to do these internet, like international exchange programs. And then I was like, but wait, you know, there are other, there are other things that you can do with that. If it's not the particular, like if it's not the lifestyle that you want to live with in your career or something, obviously it's really exciting to be living overseas for, for work. Um, but I like, I like the idea of being based in the U S and then having the option of traveling abroad. So, um, so I like, um, I think I settled down with like international development. Um, yeah, so, but I, I think that it was just really that the feeling of like feeling like I was very much in an enclave growing up and I wanted to really just put myself in a completely different environment. Um, and that's kind of what I got through, through study abroad. Um, I can go next. So for me, the reason why I chose Fulbright was because I was really passionate about Latin American studies, mostly because of my identity, of course, and also disability studies and engaging in disability justice. But when I was looking at like the job market, I wasn't really finding much of an intersection of that. So for me, Fulbright was the opportunity for me to just really explore my interests and engage with other disability justice activists and learn more about disability throughout the world um, without having to worry about the financial issues, like the financial considerations of just like jumping out um, into a new country and not having money to do so. Um, I think, to be honest, that I applied several times for Fulbright. The first time I got alternate, and then I worked for a little bit before going to that. And for me, applying the second time, it was really, for me, I really wanted to use it as a catalyst to jumpstart a career in disability justice and having that flexibility to really develop 
experience and contacts in Argentina and the United States to promote a career in disability justice? Um, so for me, um, I think uh, one of the things that definitely was always, like I've always was growing up wanted to like get out of like kind of like the reality that I was in. I think just growing up as a queer Latino in the space that I was in, it was kind of like this idea of like, you know, the 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 life that I, that is for me is like not here, which obviously that kind of evolves over time. But growing up, it was, um, I grew up with a limited income family. Um, so it was very difficult to like, think about like traveling as a reality for me. Um, even while I was in undergrad, I had to work multiple jobs. So it was, I never really had the space to like leave the country for a semester to study abroad or leave for a year. So it was always, even if I could have worked it out, I never thought that I could at that moment. Um, so it wasn't until after I actually finished both my bachelor's and my master's and I was already in a full-time job and kind of like you know, just getting into that routine that I realized, like, I, I need to to allow myself to experience more. Um, and it really all kind of came to a head for me when um, visiting Mexico with my parents, because we used to go a lot when I was younger, and then I kind of stopped going. And when I revisited Mexico as an adult for the first time with my parents, I kind of started to see it through their lens. Um, and then just thinking about, you know, my parents being 14, 15 years old and migrating to the US and kind of going to a place where they don't speak the language, where they don't understand the reality and then shifting their whole lives to adjust to that new space really made me think like, wow, like, like my parents sacrificed their their reality their life in order for me to be living the reality that i'm living now um and that kind of really pushed me to to be like you know what i i can take a break i have the luxury because of them to take a break from this job and this kind of like path that i was conditioned to think that i needed to be on you know to like get jobs to get this to get that um so then that's when i was like i'm gonna do peace corps um so I joined Peace Corps, I went to the, to the country of Samoa, um, and in a lot of ways, Samoa reminded me, like it was, it was easier for me in some ways because it reminded me of like, like Mexico and other, and other like community-based, family-based cultures. Um, and, growing, and as an anthro major in my undergrad, I really like just was really interested in, in different cultures and the different like subcultures within a culture, um, especially, you know, as like a, a queer Latino in the US being part of multiple subcultures. It was just kind of something that I was always interested in. So going to Samoa, I went in that lens and that that experience really shaped how I travel and why I travel, whether it's for work, whether it's for pleasure, whether it's for study, and really making sure that I respect and honor the spaces that I'm becoming a part of um, and not just kind of like do it to do it, if that makes sense. Um, so that's when, when Fulbright came in because I still had, after Samoa, I had um, interest in being in a Latinx country, being in a country that um, maybe have similarities you know, assumed similarities because I didn't really know yet to like Mexico and Central America, which is what I was more familiar with being from California. Um, but getting to Argentina, I learned really quickly. You know, there's a lot of things that are easy and a lot of things that aren't. Um, but that was kind of like has been my motivation. And I think I just want to continue to be an example to my family. So I'm the first person to um, 
receive degrees and to live abroad and to do a lot of the experiences that I've have done. So I think it's just in a way opening those doors for the kids in my family to know that, you know, it is an option for us regardless of what our income level is. Um, and that's mainly what the, the kind of thing that I like to share even with my students here in Argentina is sharing that, you know, going abroad to study or to work, it shouldn't be limited to by like how much money we have or we think we you know so that's kind of like been my goal with traveling is just making it something that seems more realistic for people who may have had similar like beginnings like I did yeah those are all amazing answers and I feel like <laughs> we really got to know you each and I think also it's important to talk about how each person kind of had a different trajectory I love that like Some people started traveling in high school or like as children. Some people didn't travel until much later in life. Um, and that there's a program for each, each step in life. It doesn't have to be like you just study abroad in college or high school or it doesn't happen. Um, I think that's something that people might not know about. So the next question, kind of moving a little bit towards like the logistics, I guess, of going abroad. How did you find out about your program specifically? So each one that you went on um, and who were some key people that you talked to or that were helpful or useful to you? Um, did you feel like you had the resources to help complete your application or did you kind of feel like you did it on your own? Um, what was that experience like? I'll go ahead and start. I think that I was very fortunate to be at a school that was very well resourced on this and had an, an extensive um, a study abroad office that had all of this information. And there were, you know, there are always there are always like the news announcements that come out of all of the Fulbrighters that we have of all the, you know, the people who win these prestigious um, national awards. I, I really just had found out just from like looking at, at it from from my school. I think that I got a, a, a a really significant amount of um, of help. Shout out to Lisa Gates if she's looking at this at all. She was my she was my uh, awards um, counselor, like the basically the awards counselor at the um, writing center and like career development center that we had at Middlebury. But yeah, so I spent a lot of time with her. But honestly, the the writing process I think is maybe one of the most difficult things that I'd ever have to do in my life. I don't know if people kind of resonate with this, but literally a lot of these a lot of these essays really have you bear so much about your life story and have to kind of like package that within two pages like a statement of grand purpose and a statement you know and the personal statement that you that you write um so you just have two pages to really plead your case and say like okay this is why you're the most deserving like or qualified person for that and I'd seen that you know not just through Um, you know, well, I initially saw it through Gilman when I, when I did it in 2013, but also with CLS, CLS makes you write a lot. <laughs> I know from, from the application, it was just really extensive, many questions. Um, Fulbright is a lot shorter if you're just writing two, two essays essentially. Um, and yeah, and I think that every single time it was just such a, it, it was such a process of introspection of looking back and thinking like, what exactly do I want to accomplish in doing in, in going on this program? Um, why do I care to go abroad? Um, you know, what, what is, what is in it for me? And then also the fact that it's, it's an exchange program. So it's, it's like kind of what Juan was saying. It goes, it goes both ways. You're, you're trying to also bring like bring value to the communities that you're going to be a part of when you're there um and so that's also something to keep in to keep in mind and you know um have them you know gain access to different resources and things like that but 
yeah, so I think that I got a significant amount of help, but ultimately the hard part, which was the writing process, was really like a process that I had to do on my own. I got, I could get enough guidance and stuff that I could, that I could get from this woman, Lisa, who knows, you know, what the successful ones, like the successful essays look like. And she kind of can steer me in the right direction, but ultimately I'm the one putting, putting words down to paper and, you know, saying, saying what my, what my story is and what the and how the award could get me to that next, to the next stage and what I could bring to the communities um, abroad. I think I also, um, I learned about it through my, about Fulbright, through my university's fellowship office and they were a huge resource for me. Um, They have what they call peer scholarship advisors, which are basically undergrads who help review essays and the, peer scholarship advisor that I was assigned was a lifesaver, um, wonderful human. And, um, but I also, I felt like I also looked for resources outside of my university, especially when I applied as an alumni, um, because, mainly because like, I wasn't really seeing tons of people applying to Latin America or tons of Latinos applying from my university. So um, I I had other resources to help me, including friends, including some professors, but I also reached out to like current grantees in Argentina to help me learn more about what does it mean to be a successful Fulbright candidate in Argentina. And I think for me, that was a really helpful resource, especially the second time I applied. Yeah, um, I think for me, very similarly, is the university connection was key with both Peace Corps and Fulbright. Um, So at my university, when it came to Peace Corps, we had a Peace Corps recruiter that um, was housed at the university. So it wasn't necessarily just for university students, but anyone could could have worked with them. And while I was in grad school, I, I met with the recruiter and kind of just got um, their perspective on how their experience kind of like shaped their career choices and just their life in general. Um, And I think just using some of what I shared in the first question and then also thinking about how like I had gotten everything I thought I wanted as far as like a full-time job with a certain amount of salaries and degrees and all of that. And I still didn't feel like happy. So then I think taking that space to like do an opportunity like this really made me just feel better about the things, the choices that I was making and the reasons that I was making them. Um, so talking to this person, it became kind of like this like impromptu therapy session. And I was like, you know what, I think this is gonna be what what I need to try to do. Um, and then the application for Peace Corps um, is because it is like a service-based program organization, there are those pieces of like your personal statement like a lot of the programs have, but then also, what service means to you and how uh, like conducting the service um, years will help you and how what you plan to bring to the communities. So I think for anyone interested in Peace Corps, it's definitely like doing that self-reflection um, and trying to avoid that like savior mentality, but instead thinking about like, how is this going to be a, cro- a intercultural experience regardless of what the economic status will be of the communities that you're entering. Um, and regardless of what your economic status is. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, it was a very personal, like 
like reflection-based experience writing for Peace Corps. Um, but for Fulbright, we had, my university didn't have, or doesn't have like the, the biggest reputation as far as like getting lots of people into Fulbright, but they were definitely something that they were trying to develop. So I was lucky to have um, like individualized help with someone who was not working with a lot of students at that time, because they were trying to like get more people to apply. Um, so I kind of had uh, assistance basically every step of the way. I would write my, my statements, send them in. They, the person would um, edit them for, or like give me um, edits or advice and basically just help me through. I did like a mock interview with them and things like that. Um, so I really felt prepared when it came down to like submitting my stuff and also just like Get, beginning that process. Then another part for Fulbright um, here in Argentina was doing like the language component. Um, so as a native speaker, I felt like, you know, I'm ready to go. But then when I did the, the language test with a professor, it was definitely like a little bit of like, okay, it's not more like, it's a little bit more than just like being native, but also just, you know, writing, reading and all of that is, it's a different level. Um, so yeah, so it took a lot, a lot, lot of help. Um, but like I said, luckily, I, those connections were there at the university to like assist me along the way. And Fulbright was two years after I had I wasn't a student there because they were still supporting alumni um, through the process. So, yeah, definitely say like look for resources. And I know um, Peace Corps specifically has recruiters that aren't specific to people that are in a university. It's just regionally. There's usually Peace Corps recruiters in most areas in the country. Yeah, I love what everyone's been saying. And first, let me just apologize. I think there's a birthday party happening, like, very close to me. So if you hear any, like, whoops or whatever, um, there's, like, definitely a cake and someone brought a crown in. So I think something's happening. Um, but I, to be honest, I when I applied to CLS, the Critical Language Scholarship Program, I did not know what it was. I only saw it because I just happened to read like the department newsletter, you know, that you might get sent like every week from your school. Um, and it was just our Asian languages and literatures department. And it just said like free summer in Asia. <laughs> like this seems awesome. And I applied and it, like, I was confused as to why I had to write like so much stuff. But at the end of the day, like, I applied thrice. My first year I applied, I was an alternate. And then a couple of weeks before the program started, I got off the alternate list, which was super exciting. I remember like to this day, I was at the gym and I like saw this email come up and it was very exciting. The second year I applied, I got rejected straight out. And the third year I applied, I was in grad school. And so my application looked a little bit different. Like my, my motivation we're studying we're all had also kind of shifted a little bit I kind of shifted to this like educational uh building pedagogy lens and I was accepted straight away so three different results from three different years of three different applications so some advice I'd have is if you're not sure where to start with studying abroad like check to see if your department has any like recommendations or information um because that's how I found that's how I found CLS and that opened my mind to like, everything the state department offers um this like, might be a hot take for this panel, but you also like can look, the State Department has some awesome programs and like I have had a great experience, but there are so many programs out there from so many institutions and sources. So like, if it's not for you right now, like if you are not, if you don't want to do CLS or Fulbright, but you know you want to study abroad, like 
do not let you know this stop you. Like these are awesome programs, and yes, we're gonna gas them up because we've had great experiences. But there's like so many other experiences. My study abroad in Peru in undergrad was through CIEE, which is like a like a U.S. nationwide study abroad service. So you know. Find something that works for you and don't let other people and other people's experiences cloud your own validation because you getting abroad, if that's what you want, is the best thing for you. Um, when I was looking at Fulbright, it was when I was in my master's degree program. It was also like one of those things where I was not super ready to be like out in the workforce right away. Like I went straight from undergrad to grad school. Um, I was getting, I was studying education. I was getting a teaching license at the same time. And I like, wasn't sure if I was ready to start my teaching career right away. And I had really good experiences in an undergrad study abroad program in Lima where I played soccer, like a college futsal there and like have like so many wonderful friends who are still my great friends today. And so I kind of merged like my personal passions of sports with like my academic passions of education kind of put those together into a project. Um, one thing about Fulbright that was a cool tool is there's somewhere, if you like look online, there's like a Fulbright map and it shows the, um, you can click on all the countries that there's Fulbright commissions and it'll tell you the focuses that those countries have. So that helped me decide between applying to Fulbright China or Fulbright Peru. So Peru, like when I was applying, was interested in education and sports. So I was like, okay, perfect. I think China was, was interested in other things, you know. Other countries are focused on arts. They're focused on the environment. They're, you know, there's a ton of things you can worry about. <laughs> so um, it, that just worked out too. So that helped give me a little bit of direction too as, as in terms of what country I want to go to. Um, so that's also something I'd recommend if you're interested in Fulbright to kind of take a look and see what countries are also interested in what you're interested in because you're applying either to teach somewhere for a while or to study something for a while and it should be somewhere that, you know, you'll be interested in nine months later. So those are my two experiences. So the next question I have is a little bit more, it could be application related. I know that writing came up as maybe a slight barrier, but are there any other barriers you all experienced to going abroad in general, um, whether that was like logistically, financially, uh, mindset wise? And if you had any barriers before you went abroad, how did you overcome them? For me, one of like the main thing, which I think, it, you know, it's, it's the financial piece, um, so especially with Peace Corps, because Peace Corps is 27 months total. So it's a really long time to to be abroad and to not have like a, a regular income. Um, so definitely for me, it was prioritizing those months leading up to like trying to eliminate as much debt as possible, whether it's like credit card debt or any type of thing like that, just so that um, living abroad, I, it could be focused on the experience and enjoying the present rather than thinking about like how my 
you know, everything is kind of like accumulating at home with credit cards or whatever. So that was really like my main focus was getting that part of things ready to, to at least elim- eliminate that um, stress inducer. Um, and the other part, um, and I did the same thing for Fulbright because Fulbright is not as long, but it's still, you know, you're not making enough income basically to, to be paying off like any type of bills or things that you might have. Um, so I would say if you are someone that, that, that needs to kind of do that is really putting the time and focus into trying to adjust as much as possible so that you're able to enjoy the experience without having to have that like thing in the back of your head about your, you know, like your bills and debt and stuff like that. Um, And then another part um, was definitely the adjustment from not living in the U.S., especially if you've never done it before, because it's not like going on vacation, you know, because you are creating your own, your new reality, your new life in a new country. So it's figuring out how are you going to create that routine? What are the things that are going to be a part of your routine? So for me, realizing like it's very important to make sure that wherever I'm living, there is somewhere that I can run. Um, you know, like somewhere that has a nice park or a big enough like trail or whatever where I can run um, places where I can go read and just, you know, cafes where I can do whatever. So figuring out what are those like things that you need. So that way, when you get there, you can start to build as soon as you get there rather than than having that period of time where you're just like feeling like you're scrambling because you're trying to figure out how to get a sense of like comfort. Um, so that was something that um, I learned and to do so that anytime I go abroad for an extended period of time, it's like what I figure those things out. And then lastly, um, the, the family and friends component as well, because being away from family, friends, partners, regardless of, you know, whatever that situation might be is figuring out how to maintain those relationships. So something that I do is I have like a monthly list of all the, the people that I want to like FaceTime with. So whether it's like family or friends, and then I try to schedule like, conversations, whether it's 30 minutes or a little bit more. So that way I'm maintaining a relationship with the people that matter to me and still finding ways to, to give them time, even though it's not um, in person. Cause it, you could very easily just kind of sink into the reality of like your current physical space and then, you know, kind of like not be as connected to life at home. So for me, it was important to, to have that balance where it's like, okay, I can stay home for an hour and call, you know, my cousin or my sister or whatever and find out about what's going on with them. Um, and it really just helps me enjoy things more when I know I'm like still doing my best to remain connected and remain present at home. Yeah, I think I echo everything that Juan said. Um, I think the financial aspect was huge. I think it was the reverse for me since I was younger when I was doing like Fulbright. I think the um, amount of money that I was earning was like, okay, this the stipend was really generous. Morocco was also a really cheap country to live in. So I had, I actually saved up some money while I was there. And that actually helped me take a few risks. Um, when I came back to the US, um, I took like, initially my, you know, I took, um, uh, an unpaid internship when I, when I came and I lived in my best friend's basement for five months before I was able to like actually find housing that I could afford and pay for in, in DC, which is like extremely like insanely expensive. So, um, that was definitely like a barrier. Um, but I feel like in the end it all, it all, it all worked out. Um, and I was able to be supported by like friends and friends who are family and family as well. So, um, yeah, so it was that, that was really nice, but, um, I think one of the biggest barriers to me, and this is honestly just like, 
just because of stereotypes that people have about the Middle East. Um, I'm also queer and, um, and going, the decision to study abroad in the Middle East was something that I was like super afraid of. Cause I, you know, you hear about all of these like awful things that happen about how homosexuality is, um, is, is uh, punishable by imprisonment or even by like deaths in, in some places in the region and stuff like that. So I was really freaked out, but honestly, <laughs> I'm so, I'm so glad in hindsight that I've been, that I've, uh, that I'm making this lifelong commitment to working in this, in this part of the world and having, and having this relationship with that part of the world, because that could be, of course there are circumstances and instances where things like that happen, but also in like queer communities develop in all types of locations in every circumstances against all odds. And, and there are safe spaces and stuff like that for people to go um, and, and, you know, ex express themselves, be their full authentic selves. And I think that that was the most beautiful thing that I had, had seen while I was in, in the region. And, and um, that was not just with the initial decision to go to Jordan, but even, you know, I felt like I had to walk back into the closet when I was a teacher, um, when I, and in a classroom in, in, the, in Morocco, when I had queer students, <laughs> they're actually friends of mine right now that I still keep in touch with on like Instagram and stuff on social media. And, you know, I've met, I've met them in, in France and stuff like that. And ever since, like, since I've left and, you know, there's so many stereotypes I feel like that we have about these places and we, we, I, I'm happy that I didn't stand in my own way from experiencing that and, and having that be, a, um, you know, something that was super beautiful and eye-opening for me. And I, yeah, so I, I think that that was, that was really, that was really great. Um, yeah, I think that that was the biggest barrier. I think just the barriers that you set up for yourself and then, and then that not matching up for, for, re, uh, against reality, but again, echoing everything that, that, um, that, that Juan said as well. Yeah, um, one little shout out to my educational founding. Um, the Hispanic Scholarship Fund helped me pay for school for this five years that I was in it. So if you are somebody who um, is interested in more financial aid, um, the scholar Hispanic Scholarship Fund was like, hugely helpful to me and one year I didn't get it because I forgot to apply <laughs> so just you know put yourself out there try it um it's like a, it's a great foundation that does a lot of really great like um professional development work as well for like high school students as well as undergrads um it's got a great network I'm not like very in touch with them at this point but um yeah the Hispanic Scholarship Fund is Awesome. And there's no risk in, you know, applying and seeing if you get a check in the mail every year. It's great. And, you know, aside from that, yes, I think the financial aspect is always like, you know, it's generally difficult. Um, I have resolved it by trying to apply to fully funded programs like CLS and Fulbright. But, you know, even with that, you know, I'm in Peru and I'm applying for more funding because, yeah, it's enough money to get by. But if, you know, if you want to expand your project or if you, if you are creating other goals and that, if, and that wasn't a part of your initial application, like there isn't going to be funding for you for that. So when I applied to Fulbright, I applied to do like a survey of the development of girls soccer programs in Lima. And I had one site visit in the rainforest. That was one flight. 
I have now come in contact with an organization that has sites in like over six provinces in the country. And I think it's really important to get all the like multiple perspectives that come with that. But I don't have funding for that, right? Because that wasn't in my initial Fulbright application. So that's something to keep in mind when you're applying, especially to like uh, project-based grants is that like, if you're awarded it, you'll be awarded it for whatever you applied for. So if it changes, yeah, we'll have to make adjustments accordingly. Um, one thing that I haven't really experienced in Peru as much, but studying abroad and having people question if you're from the U.S. can always, it's like always really challenging for me, especially as an adopted person who like my identity and my family background is like always being questioned by people that like have no right to question who I am and how I identify. Um, it's been really frustrating having like being with a group of white friends and we're all studying abroad and we're all in the same U.S. based abroad program and being like, oh yeah, we're like Americans, quote unquote, you know, whatever that means. Um, but you know, we're from the U.S. and people being like, oh, they are, but like, where are you from? You're like, oh, you must be, you must be from Mexico. <laughs> like, well, you know, perhaps I have friends and people who look like me that are of Mexican descent or are actually from Mexico. But, like I am not. Um, so having to like, first of all, like you do not need to explain yourself to anybody. So if they are making that assumption, you can say, no, people from the U.S. look like all sorts of different types of people. But like the conversation doesn't need to go further than that. If you want to, you can. But like, it's not our job to be like educating like people that we meet at a restaurant, right? Like that, it's not our job. And I feel like when I started studying abroad, it really felt like that was really important. And like, that's how I was going to change like the perspective of, of people's perspective on the U S but like you can have that conversation every single second of every single day for the rest of your life. And there's still going to be people that don't think you are how you identify. And you know, like that, that's just that. So that is one challenge I've experienced that I think as I'm getting older, I'm like maybe more jaded. Like I'm fine with just ignoring those comments now. Oh, I did want to go into like also talking about like queer identity and just like identity in general when you're studying abroad. Like studying abroad can be such a freeing time to like explore parts yourself, whether it be your sexuality or like other aspects of your identity that maybe have felt like stagnant where you are. And not to say that you're like repressing anything or like ignoring parts yourself, but there are also parts of yourself that you don't even realize exist until you're studying abroad or until you're like out of your comfort zone. Um, I think sexuality is a great example of that, but there can be other aspects of like academic interests or personal passions that you didn't realize. And so like, you know, it's okay to be afraid of being in an, somewhere uncomfortable, but that's where we grow. And going to South America can also be really scary as a woman. Um, Peru, unfortunately, has the highest rate of feminicides in South America. And so um, even like traveling around the country by myself, it can be a little bit stressful, but I've also like had such amazing experiences and you kind of learn to make contact with people that you know you can trust along the way and yeah I think I grew up in Minnesota went to school in Minnesota and so I never really considered like 
my own sexuality until I moved to Lima, Peru and like found this like really robust, like queer community and like found so many people around me that made me feel comfortable with my bisexuality that I feel like growing up in the same place, it felt kind of silly to like relabel myself or like change my identity. But when you're with like a whole nother group of people who don't know anything about you already, like it's so much easier to feel open to those new experiences. I think for me, I've had two really big barriers or I've had two barriers in general with um, getting to Fulbright. The first is definitely, I agree, financial. Um, Just even the fact like I was working a job in D.C. that had a much higher salary compared to the Fulbright stipend and having to let that go. And, you know, I think the stipend really is able, at least in Argentina, like it covers my cost of living here perfectly. I'm able to even use some of the money to travel, but it doesn't necessarily cover any of my costs in the United States. And for that, I did have to build up a little bit of savings, especially during the pandemic to account for any of my costs, um, any of my bills in the United States. I think the other big barrier for me was the pandemic. I think even just like being in the safe space of my house and then being told, okay, this grant is actually happening time to go. Like that was a big step for me. Um, That was kind of scary. And, but I, I mean, at that point I've, I've been waiting for this grant, like with all the applications for five years. So there was no way I wasn't going to do it. Um, But even like navigating the Fulbright grant and navigating living in a new country during a pandemic, I think has been very challenging and I guess unprecedented because I don't know how many other Fulbright cohorts before have dealt with like living in abroad and in a pandemic. So I think for that, it's been a lot about giving myself grace and realizing that things are difficult, like making friends in like after college in general was hard, but having to do it after a pandemic where like you're really not in spaces to make new friends and going into a new country, it's going to be a little bit harder and it's going to take some time to adjust. So I think those were the two biggest barriers that I've experienced getting into Argentina. Yeah. Thank you all so much for bringing up the non, the non-logistics, non-financial barriers. I feel like a lot of times those aren't talked about very much. And of course there are ways to really like mitigate the financial barriers and the logistical barriers. And we'll have more talks about that later in our, in our panel series. But I think definitely thinking about like what your identity will look like abroad, how people respond to that. Those are things that you might not be prepared for, but it is a reality. And I think like each and every person as we were talking about that was like, yes, like I totally agree with that. That happened to me too. Um, It's just a thing that is better to be a little bit prepared for than to be totally blindsided by. So I'm glad you all brought that up. Um, Since we're getting closer to the end, I'm going to try to like maybe squeeze together a few questions, but I think you all covered kind of your challenges abroad, but I was interested if you could describe maybe your overall experience abroad, each, each one, if you went to different countries and like, what was the highlight or like something you're like, wow, I'm so glad I did this because I had this experience, anything like that. 
So both of my experiences, both in Jordan and in Morocco were like horror stories. Like there were definitely things that happened that I would not wish on anybody to happen. Like the worst of the travel stories. Um, yeah, I could go on and I can go on about that later, but I still was so intrigued and really, really wanted to continue because I feel like in those difficult moments, like exactly kind of what Sophia was saying when I was uncomfortable, those were the periods of growth and those were the periods where I was really learning a, a, like a tremendous amount about myself. And so I, I went back for a second, a, a second time, um, both to Jordan and Morocco. Um, so I went to Jordan in 2013 with Gilman had like an awful homestay situation and then also got a, got scammed by a taxi driver and then when I was in Morocco I essentially this is complete suspicion and conjecture never confirmed but I think that I was uh kicked out like I was kicked out by my host mom because I think she found out that I was gay and then was like not down with that and then and then also like I um yeah the program that I went with initially to Morocco I was supposed to teach English as a volunteer for for eight weeks I only taught for two and then it was so awful that I was just like okay I've had it I'm leaving and then I like went went off to to France and then stayed with my French host family from high school which I still keep in touch with but anyhow but yeah so even though there were like these horror stories like I think that like I still I was still very curious for more and I'm so glad that I gave myself the opportunity to go back because it felt like the now having gone through those experience I knew the the ropes I knew how how to like hold myself in street smarts and things like that and honestly I stand by this I think that my Fulbright ETA experience it was very difficult initially. I got food poisoning. I, you know, I was closeted and I didn't know how to navigate like the situation at school and everything like that. But honestly, it was the, like one of the best things I'd ever done. I met one of the, the, there was another ETA in the same city. That's why I asked. So, um, Sabrina and Juan, if they were together, um, because I, I was paired with somebody else in this, in Agadir in the South. And she's still like one of the most important people to me in my life. And that's just a lifelong friendship that I'll keep forever. Um, and yeah, I, I think it was just uh, incredible to be able to, you know, be a teacher. I think it's one of the most rewarding professions that you have, especially when you're learning a language, because there's those like, aha, eureka moments, like, oh my gosh, I'm like, I'm, I'm speaking and I'm allowing myself to get understood and everything like that. And as a language learner, I love seeing and like knowing what that's been like for me with several different languages that I've learned, like seeing that in other people is incredible. Um, and knowing that I have a have a part in that is also really rewarding too. Um, so yeah, I think I think that those were the best the best parts. Um, I love Morocco so much. I was able to travel all around the country during my Fulbright ETA. Um, I still haven't been to the desert. That's the one last thing I like. Left all the touristy things for other when people would come to visit, and nobody ever wanted to go to the desert. So, so that's on my bucket list. Um, and I will go back um, to Morocco. Um, yeah. And then with Jordan, I just love it. I think that, yeah, just the, the culture, it's, it's a small, but very mighty, beautiful country. And, um, and I, yeah, and I think it's, it, it was really great. So, and similarly to, you know, just to, while I still have the floor and the, mic the microphone, I think one of the, the hardest things is really like 
going abroad as a, as a light skinned, like Dominican, I don't present as someone who's Dominican. I'm very ethnically ambiguous. I think people don't read me as Dominican or Latino, even when they meet me. So it, it was, it was really frustrating when I was, you know, going, going abroad and, and people, you know, not like first not knowing that I'm like American, but then not believing me when I don't, that I, when I say that I'm Dominican um, and then, and then everybody's like, no, but you're Egyptian or you're Tunisian or you're Moroccan or you're, you're Palestinian. You're, I got Lebanese this last time I got from, from South Asia. I'm like, how the hell am I from South Asia? I don't, I don't understand where you get that from. So people get really creative sometimes. Um, and and it's uh it's always fun to see that um yeah but i think i think it's um yeah e- even if you have an initial bad experience quote unquote i'm really happy i gave both jordan and morocco second chances because i just completely like i i love both both countries so much and i'm really happy that yeah i got to i got to i got to have them um, go for go for seconds yeah I think for me, um, the highlight so far being in Argentina has been two things. The first is um, part of my research is to be involved with a disabled people's organization in La Plata called Asociación Azul. And basically their whole mission is to promote the independent living movement of people with disabilities in Argentina and also Latin America overall. And I think that my relationship with them and the connections that I've created are is probably one of my favorite things, if not my favorite thing in being in Argentina. There's such a welcoming and kind and caring community that I'm very, very grateful for them because I think that they've made my time in La Plata a million times better. I think the other thing that has been a highlight for me is just exploring Argentina and also finding unique places in Argentina to visit that aren't necessarily tourist traps. Um, So for example, I just spent a week in my landlord's hometown and I was able to explore some beautiful parts of the province that may not be known. Like for example, this 50 year old um, Irosia up a mountain that she went with her grandmother. That was absolutely a breathtaking view of Cordoba. Um, and I think that having those very special moments of not necessarily doing touristy things was very special to me. And I'm really excited to see what else I will be doing and developing the relationship with Asociación Azul in the next couple months. Um, when I think of highlights and I guess lowlights, um, I, I, my two CLS experiences were both in the same region of China, which was awesome because I... I feel like I just got to know that region really well with two summers like being spent there. Um, but they were really, really different experiences. And I would say my first one, the location was amazing. I didn't get as, I mean, I was close with my people, the, the other participants, but we were all living with host families, right? So we we're all living separately, having our own kind of unique experiences. My host family experience was interesting. Um, the host, my host dad, I guess I call him my host uncle, he worked as like a cargo ship captain, which is just a intense job. So for six months out of the year, you're at home because we make like, it's like make a ton of money, but six months out of the year, you're like on a cargo ship 
like going all over the world to like different port cities with all your stuff. And so midway through the summer, he left to go to his six months. And it was like, like sad. And like host mom and sister, like both like also get really sad when he leaves. So like the, the house spirit was very low, which is really tough. Also, he was a great cook and then he was gone and none of us could cook. So that was tough, but amazing location. Such a beautiful place in China. It's called Dalian and it's like the honeymoon capital of China. It's like on the water, it's on the uh, Korean peninsula. So it's up North. Um, beautiful and really good food. A lot of like interesting Korean fusion food because they're, they are on the border. And then my other CLS experience, the location wasn't as gorgeous, but the community was like super strong. We all lived in dorms, like we lived on campus. So we all were living together and our roommates were um, like Chinese students. A lot of them are studying English as business or like other kind of like related uh I don't know, majors, I guess you would call them, or programs, but we only, we could only speak Mandarin. Our language of pledge was upheld, and it truly was. Um, so I feel like my language got really, really strong, and also, like, I just feel like even though we were, like, maybe not in a very glamorous part of the country, like, we were so close because we were living together 24-7, and we traveled all the time, um, yeah, so that was awesome, but like two very, very different experiences. We definitely weren't at the honeymoon capital of China. We were actually at the like automobile manufacturing capital of China. So like cool cars, there's lots of cool cars everywhere. Um, and then in Fulbright, like so far, it's been such an awesome experience. I think every time I get to a site visit and I'm I'm like gathering quantitative and qualitative da data for my uh, research report. And so I get to a site, so I get to like a soccer practice. And I'm a little bit stressed because I have to like do all of these pre and post surveys. I need to interview everyone who's there. I need to like talk to community members. And then like every single time as I'm like midway through the soccer practice and I pull each child individually to like interview her about her experiences, I like look at the field everyone's playing soccer and like laughing and it's just so like innocent and pure and like kid joy is something that's just irreplaceable and also something that I don't think is as valued right now in the world so that's just really special to me and I feel really grateful that I chose a project that I just like find so much joy in and also like I truly believe is really important and I think developing equitable sports practices and bringing movement movement and mindfulness into the classroom like is a way in which we can keep protecting like children's innocence and I'm like thinking in Spanish right now like strengthening their academic and emotional well-being so it's, but it's been really lucky that I you know I just have this opportunity to do a project that I'm so passionate about so that's been my highlight here in Peru I think I, as a Fulbrighter, like I've had to self-advocate a little bit with my commission here. Like if I need support to like really be the one asking for it. Um, I think the commission has a lot of confidence that the work we're doing, like we've gone through the application projects, we have our affiliates and like go on, do your thing. So I think gaining confidence and asking for support or help when I need it has been like a nice uh, growth moment for me, but definitely something I'm feeling more confident in as I'm going into my like second half of the program. So that would be something that I I've been working on here as well. 
Um, so for me, um, thinking about Peace Corps, um, so Peace Corps, I mean, like I mentioned, is a, is a long time. Um, so it was definitely, um, took some adjustment time in the beginning just to get used to being in a new country and kind of the different cultural components that come with that. Um, and Samoa, which is where I was, um, also had um, some laws against homosexuality. So for me, it was it was having to kind of like adjust and, and be t- being told basically like it's better to be in the closet in your home, um, like your where the village or community that you're placed in. Um, so having to kind of like adjust to that. And the family that I would, my host family had very limited English. And obviously I was learning Samoan as I was like doing the program. So it was having this like, um, relationship and building the relationship with them with limited like language use which at the end of it really was one of the highlights because it really showed me the kind of the power of like humanity and like being able to connect with people without necessarily like knowing how to how to say everything and and it really just brought for me like a a whole nother understanding to like people in my family or other like latinx people in the u.s or even from other places that struggle with speaking english and you know like their treatment in our country by some people um so for me it really like brought gave me that like understanding of like wow like it it really does take some adjustment and and it's work um so it's not as easy as saying like learn english and and be part you know what i mean so it's I really got like something positive out of that like language component in Samoa. Um, and another thing was um, both Peace Corps and Fulbright, my experiences have been predominantly white as far as like the group that I'm coming in with. Um, so for me being um, a Latino and also just being first gen and and um, coming from like more limited income beginnings um, and also being um queer like all of that kind of like intersects where it's like limited support from your peers um as far as like their level of understanding where it's like i don't want to have to to teach someone how to support me um when i'm having a conversation with them so one of the things that really helped in samoa was my relationships with the other pocs or the other bipoc people in the group as far and the other like queer identifying individuals and it really kind of creates this really strong community because we're not only all in a new country but we're all also like super minorities in in our cohort um, where we're facing challenges that that our like white peers um, don't necessarily always fully understand. So that was one of the challenges, but then the highlight was the the wonderful relationships that I've created with those people that are like best friends with me now and people that I'll carry through the rest of my life um, that I met thanks to, um, to Peace Corps. And overall, like the experience was very positive because of the Samoan cultures, the the communal approach, the family approach, which is very, very, very Latino to me. So it wasn't something that was like strange to understand, like how family is kind of like at the center of the culture. Um, So I was very comfortable with with that and finding those outlets like, you know, maybe I couldn't be openly queer in the my host village. But, you know, when it's 
the weekend in the capital, it's on and popping, you know? So it's like, it's like finding those like outlets and, and those spaces um, to be fully yourself and recognizing that those moments where you're not able to do that aren't a reflection of who you really are, but are a reflection of the work that you need to do. Um, so it, it wasn't, it's like finding kind of like the positive side of like being in the closet again, which is not always easy. Um, but yeah, so overall it was great, but unfortunately I was part of that um, evacuated Peace Corps group that was in Samoa um, November, March 2020. Um, so my experience, luckily I was part of the second cohort, so I had completed most of my time. Um, so my experience was cut a few months short. Um, so it was very difficult to have to like say goodbye abruptly to not only my students, but my host family that I had been with for two years and um, like my community and my friends that I had made the other Peace Corps volunteers because Samoa is a very small country. So unlike other Peace Corps posts, the volunteers are very close in proximity. Um, so we were able to spend a lot of time together. Um, so it, it was definitely really hard to find out on Monday that you have to be home by Thursday. Um, and having to like, it was, it was a very, and then showing up to the US and like everything with COVID was like just, so that was kind of like the worst part, but luckily, you know, like in retrospect, I'm, I'm, I learned a lot from that experience. And now being here in Fulbright, um, I definitely feel because I did Peace Corps first that I was more prepared for the adjustment as far as like just the, the general things that come with like living in a new country and adjusting to the routine and all of that. Um, but I think along to um, what Sophia shared earlier, for me, having my identity as, uh, you know, someone from my nationality essentially being questioned constantly um, was something that I, at first I, I took a little personal and mind you, I'm still in Argentina. So all of this, some of this is, uh, is still like happening and it's still kind of raw, but it's like under like having people be like, where are you really from? And then it, it kind of triggers that from you from being in PWI spaces in the United States where people are questioning your identity in that way. So at first I, I was taking it personal and then I realized like, you know, like Sophia mentioned, it's not my job to educate everybody on, on identities. But what I tried to do is also like learn more about immigration patterns in Argentina and basically turning the conversation onto them and talking about like, well, you know, your country is also a product of immigrants. All of these Europeans weren't born here. Um, you know, like there is, they had two massive waves of immigration from Europe. So, you know, like that's how your, your people were, that's how you, the pattern and demographics were created. And the U.S. is similar, you know, but they don't ever want to get into that deep history, if y'all know what I mean. Um, so, so for me, it was kind of like figuring out ways to like turn that like feeling of like uncomfortableness by needing to to explain myself onto them and say, hey, like I'm here too to learn about you guys. Like, what does immigration look like here? What are your what does racism look like in Argentina? Um, and what you know what I mean? So it's like having those conversations be two sided instead of you being put in the hot seat of like, well, you're too brown to be from the United States. You're too this to be from the United States. And then the last layer that was kind of a challenge is the language because I'm already fluent native in Spanish uh, from my parents, which has, you know, Mexican roots. So then having people kind of like 
look at my Spanish as less than their Spanish was was very interesting because some of my peers are are learning are, are, you know, they learned it in college or high school. So then when they come here, it's easier for them to adjust their accent to Argentine stuff because they're trying to do it as part of their experience. I'm not going to fake an accent that's not mine. Like for me, it's like my, I speak Spanish already. And I, and when people say like, oh, that's not the right word. It's like, well, this is a Spanish my family speaks. So it, it's kind of hard to be like, like not take it as like, oh, you're saying that the Spanish that my family speaks is wrong Spanish, you know? So that was kind of like a challenge. But overall, I would say that because of my previous experiences and simply just being a queer like person of color in the United States, I've learned to like find the, the people, find the, your like your support circle um, with people who, whether it's people with shared identities or not, but finding that support circle in the country or in the space that you're in, uh, including local people, because a lot of my good friends here are people from Argentina who are like-minded, who are also dealing with the isms that are happening in their country. So it's that's been like really my saving grace here is like having those connections and having people to really just like show you their country in a more authentic way and not necessarily like like allow you to feel like an outsider when other other things are trying to do that you know what I mean so yeah thanks yeah I love I loved your answer one that was incredible you covered all the bases and there was just so many moments where I was like yes like exactly And like, that brings me uh, to the last question. And then we have one for the Q&A that's in the chat. Um, And the last question, each of you, I think, kind of touched on this a little bit. But if there are ways that you could say it, maybe a bit more explicitly what you did, but how did you find community abroad, especially thinking about all of your identities um, and thinking about all the different ways that you can relate to people? How did you find some systems that were like, yes, I feel comfortable here. I feel like I can be myself. I feel like I'm relating to people. Like, do you have any tangible advice for that? So for me, it was really hard because when I was in, so all of it was, I think, dependent on a network, um, which I think was, I think that's what it came down to is really finding one person and then having them connect you to to other folks. Uh, and then also like in Morocco, it was really challenging because the city that I was uh, teaching at was actually pretty small. And and my the the university I was teaching at was pretty like pretty large. And so a lot of it was kind of hard. And a lot of the my students were actually my age. Um, and there were people who I wanted to like become friends with and stuff like that. But I didn't see it as like appropriate teacher-student relationships. And so I had to like really distance myself from them, which is not something that I wanted to do. Um, and I saw that, you know, these people are so freaking dope. Like I want to be, I want to be their friends. Um, but I, I just didn't, I, I felt like red, um, reluctant to, to initiate those relationships. Um, what I ended up doing was volunteering at a local organization. I think that um, Sabrina was talking about a place that she was working at um, as well. So, um, and through that, I was able to identify people who weren't necessarily like in the university and then kind of like latched onto them. So like my, like Darija teacher, Darija is the, the um, local Moroccan Arabic dialect. 
um, she, she became like one of my best friends. And so, and once I was with her, I realized, okay, like she's down, she's okay with me being gay. She's okay. She's like, oh yeah, you know, and not even just okay with it. She loves it and stuff. So it was just like, and, and so I, I was able to really like start with her and then she would introduce me to her friends. And she also understood kind of like what some of my boundaries were and my comfort levels were with connecting with other people from the university and like trying to keep those like keep my work and private life like separate. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think that those are good ways to kind of just like branch out and make and build some community. Um, yeah, I think going along with everything that you said, Ezekiel, like bonding over common interests. I mean, that's a great way to make friends wherever you are. When I was in China, that meant like me and some of my friends who really liked working out, like finding a gym and like going to the gym together a couple times a week being you know if this like is pushing you out of your comfort zone maybe challenge yourself and like be the person who organizes like a dinner together like oh hey there's this great restaurant I heard or like oh I want to try like to make this food that we like had the other day like saying we want to come over and I'll like get the ingredients for us you know like especially I think food is a great way to bond a lot of times you know a a lot of us like love traveling and one of the reasons is because we get to see what other cultures are eating and kind of like experience food in a new way. So given us in China, it was like me and my roommate both loved bubble tea. So we'd go get tea like every week. Um, and when I was in Peru, that meant like joining soccer. Uh, so that's like the way I found the most success is just like finding common interest and like being confident to be the person to organize like some communal things um as well and yeah depending on like where you are if you're in a in a bigger city yeah going to like community events and things like that can also be uh, a really good option for me finding community has been really difficult to be honest um i feel like especially what i realized at least in Argentina for researchers, it's very easy to be in your own bubble and not have like an established place where you would be meeting people consistently and developing those relationships naturally. So I feel like you have to almost go out of your way. Like it's been successful, unsuccessful trying to find people these past four or five months. And I think the biggest community I've had is definitely with Asociación Azul, um, which is a disabled people's organization I collaborate with. Um, but one big advice that I I think would have been really helpful for me to know, especially since this is like my first time really living abroad, is that it takes time to get settled. It's it's hard to make like develop a community in the United States after graduation it's going to be hard and it's going to take time to develop that community um, while abroad and it's okay if the beginning is just you taking care of yourself learning everything and just having a lot of me dates that is perfectly fine the community will come sooner or later I promise Um, and for me I think in Samoa it was Um, a bit difficult um, outside of 
the like obviously with the the other volunteers that cohort um we kind of had like just some natural connections but simply just being you know people from the united states and in a different country um but for me it was important to to build community and develop connections with people local people from the country um so figuring out um why in samoa it was automatically like whoever in the village that i was in spoke English, which was very limited. Um, so it was like a few people that were, had some fluency in English. So those people kind of like, I was immediately connected with um, through uh, the the school that I was working at, um, just because it was like other people to speak English with, um, whether they wanted to practice or just simply for me to be able to, to speak to a person. Cause there was times where I would be in my village uh, the village that I was placed in um, for like weeks at a time without going to the capital or seeing another Peace Corps volunteer. So that means that in person, I wasn't speaking fluent English or any language fluently for like weeks at a time, which could be very challenging, um, especially if your level and the local language is very low, um, which it was for me in the beginning. So it was it was kind of an adjustment to to not have as much social interaction as I wanted to with language. Um, so having those people that were that did speak English, that wanted to practice, that wanted to talk to me was like very helpful. Um, and then eventually you just, as you spend more time and go and put yourself out there. Um, so for me, it was important to go to like community-based events, whether I understood what was happening or not, but still just putting myself out there because people in the community knew that I was like the Peace Corps volunteer. So they, so I kind of like, people knew who I was, but I didn't really know who people were. So it was important to go out there, meet people and just be like a physical presence and be around the community. Um, and that really helped in, in Peace Corps was just putting myself out there. Here in Argentina, because I am fluent in Spanish, um, for me personally, it has been, in the beginning was a little like difficult, but then I started to just find those spaces of things that I like to do. So whether it's like finding like a running club or joining a gym or um, going to like the LGBT center in the city that I'm in, or honestly even going to like the gay club or like things like that is like figuring those spaces that, that I, that exist and connecting with them. Um, and then kind of like making friends through that. And then also um, like speaking groups, that often exists uh, in, in uh, countries abroad where you have people coming from various different languages and just having like a beer together or, or eating a meal together and sharing stories. Um, so that has been really helpful here is like finding those different social outlets um, to connect with. And then I think also working in the university, a lot of my students are very eager to like connect with me and spend time with me. So, so using some of those um, experiences as well to like have coffee with the student or to like hang out with students um, and spend more like one-on-one, -on -one, like personal get to know you time outside of just the academic setting. So it really was more about like putting myself in, into as many spaces as possible. So then I could kind of like figure out like what is that I want to be part of my experience and then having kind of like the choice of like, okay, well this week I'm going to do X, Y, and Z or some weeks I might not do anything and just sit in my apartment and relax. So having that like flexibility of doing both, because I know sometimes you might feel pressured to like just say yes to everybody and hang out all the time because you want to have the intercultural exchange and you want to make sure you're living here. But then sometimes that requires like 
watching your favorite show on Netflix and just like, you know, eating junk food and being by yourself. Cause that's what's going to make you feel the most comfortable at that point. So I think just the balance, but it did take like putting myself out there in the beginning to get to the balance. Totally. Totally. It's a, it is really hard. I think Sabrina mentioned this a few times that I totally agree. It's very hard to make friends as an adult. So of course it would not be any simpler when you're abroad. Um, but everyone, I feel like you all gave really great advice, find people doing your hobbies, find people, one person that can introduce you to other people. Um, and soon you'll have a friend group, you'll have people to talk to and go out with. Um, so that is the end of our panel, official panel parts. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I think we have one question in the Q&A, so I'm so sorry to keep you longer. If you need to log off now, you have a hard stop, like, do not, do not let me stop you. Um, but just one question from Elena, and then we will, you know, uh, close close our first panel. So the question Elena has, uh, she says, Ezekiel, you touched upon this a bit, but could you please share something unexpected that you experienced during your time abroad, whether it was good or bad, and how you navigated this unexpected experience? Um, so I'll leave this open to anyone who wants to start. I saw this in the chat and I had like something immediately come to mind, which wasn't, it actually isn't my experience, um, but I bear, bore witness to it. Um, and it was, unfortunately, it was a negative experience. So when I was studying abroad, I, and it's kind of a little bit kind of along the same lines of Juan, what you were saying about like your like Spanish and kind of speaking different Spanish, being from a different part of the world. Um, and having people kind of shame you for that or kind of like question. Um, but I've had friends who are adopted from other countries and speaking, you know, learning that language from their home country because they're living in the U.S. now. So we're you know, speaking English and they didn't have um, the option to learn their home language or their language from their country of birth. Anyways, like being in that country and them practicing that language that's new to them that they're learning and like being really excited about that and having people like people in that country kind of shaming them for not knowing that language perfectly and I think even some people in the U.S. Um, some of my Latinx friends have experienced being shamed for not speaking Spanish perfectly um, and growing up in the U.S. so I think this is something that a lot of us might be able to relate to in different respects but yeah I think it was really disheartening to see like my friends who I know like are adopted and your relationship with your country of birth can be so complex and for like their efforts to get to know a part of their country of origin like being shot down or um kind of like you know not being validated or seen as like not enough um, was really tough. And thankfully, like, I've been really, really embraced in Peru. And whenever I share to people that I'm adopted and, like, really excited to get to know my, you know, country of birth, people are, like, incredibly supportive and really welcoming. Um, but unfortunately, like, not everyone has that same experience. I think it depends on where you are and who you're talking to. Um, so that was really hard. And I think, yeah, I think 
a lot of us can relate to that on different levels. So as adoptee allies, like I just, you know, tried really hard to support them and, you know, kind of tell them that, you know, those people's opinions doesn't reflect everyone's and the work they're doing is important. And also like you, you know, if you end up studying abroad, if you're interested in studying abroad, like, yeah, language is not the only way to get to know a different country. And also like not being able to speak one language perfectly means that you probably speak another language with a lot of fluency. And that's really, really impressive. Um, so yeah, just keep it up. Um, and yeah, if that ever happens to you, I'm really, really sorry, but you know, every good experience and every bad experience is reflected kind of one way or the other. So something good will come around after that, I'm sure. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't feel like I have much more to share. I think that there, everybody's been so comprehensive and it's been such a rich discussion. Um, but kind of just to add on to what Juan mentioned, I was um, in Jordan in the summer of 2015 when gay marriage was legalized um, by the Supreme Court. Um, and I was, and I had arrived in Jordan the day that the um, Roe v. Wade um, announcement had come out. So it was all over the news, um, all over, all, like all of the screens on the hotel that I was staying at were showing, you know, CNN and the protests that were happening outside of the outside of the Supreme Court. Um, and yeah, I, I agree. I think that these are things that, you know, happen. And, um, you know, it, it, it was, I think that one of the Obviously, that's something that's unexpected. You never know, like, okay, they're going to overturn. I mean, it kind of was expected on, I guess you could argue on both sides because we the the paper was leaked for, for Roe v. Wade and we had, um, I mean, I think this, this, the gay marriage decision was somewhat unexpected, but I think that I really tried to seek support from people within my cohort and also from friends back home um, to try to, you know, kind of process what was happening. And also it was really hard to do that in isolation, like in, from, from Jordan. Um, and yeah, I, I was, I was really overwhelmed. I think that at that point I just like decided, okay, especially after Ruby Wade, I was like, okay, I can't, I can't follow the news. I'm back. I'm backtracked. I'm like th two, two, two weeks back on the news and I'm slowly catching up now that I actually have the time to like dedicate to my phone and everything like that and reading and reading my morning updates that I get um, from CNN and the New York Times. But yeah, it's just, yeah, it's kind of like one of those things where you really have to um, seek the immediate support that you need in order to, in order to feel um, supported and that you're not, you know, just processing this in a vacuum. Yeah, definitely. You're you're still American when you're abroad. You still care about the things that are happening in America. That doesn't just like change automatically. But it is it is hard, I think, to not have not necessarily be around other people that either care about the same thing and or see issues in the same way. Um, it is it is a challenge to being abroad. So that is the end of our panel. I appreciate all of our panelists so much. Like. I'm, I'm clapping slowly, quietly, <laughs> but I appreciate each and every one of you for showing up and giving your time. I will be in contact with like post panel details. Um, thanks for everyone that watched either through our live stream and or in the Zoom room. Uh, thanks, Elena, for your question. That was wonderful. Um, and I so look forward to having more of these panels as the year goes on. And thank you guys so much for taking the time to do this. I know that so many people got wonderful advice from all of you. And we will be using little clips from this to just promote 
exchange programs in general. And we are just so excited to have the possibility of maybe someone sees this and they're like, I was on the fence, but now I might actually apply. And that's like our dream. That's our hope. So thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, If you have any questions, feel free to email me and have a wonderful day, everyone. Bye, everyone. Nice meeting you all. Thank you so much. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Well, y'all, we hope you enjoyed our first episode of our alumni panel series. On our next panel, we'll be talking about how our fellow Latinx alumni leverage their international experience to actually find jobs abroad. Follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. And remember, estamos juntos. The song you're listening to is Vamos a Tocar Sonero by Frank Guerrero y su grupo Ashe. And this panel was moderated by Cheyenne Garcia, and the audio was edited by Genesis Garcia. Thanks for your support. Thank you.